Good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles out and follow along, we'll be spending some time this morning going through a topic that originally presented itself, I believe, in the, in the adult Bible study that we have here on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. So we have been studying through the book of Ephesians, and Richard doing an excellent job guiding our minds in, in that study. There was a, a passage that we read in chapter 1 that kind of caught my attention for a moment. The passage is in chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, and it says there, uh, speaking of those who, who have been chosen, those who have been predestined, and, and we, we discussed the... So it was speaking about those who had, had been saved in Christ Jesus... And it says that in Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now that last part of the phrase there, there has been so much confusion about the Holy Spirit, who He is, what He does, and, and I believe it's understandable why there's so much confusion on that due to the fact that so much of the religious world have woefully mistreated him uh, and, and actually turned him more of less of a him, less of a personality, and, and more of an it, some sort of thing that, that we can take and use to the ways in which we desire. And so as we've done in the past, we've, we've been reflecting upon God and upon Jesus and, and upon the church, and I want to spend some time this morning reflecting upon the Holy Spirit. Now, I am going to say right now that this is a different laptop than we're, we usually use for our PowerPoints. Um, we had something wrong with our old one, and this one is not a, a whole lot better. So we may forego a PowerPoint here in a moment, but I've tried to put a lot of passages uh, on the board because we're going to be looking at several passages as we, as we try to, to get a, a better understanding of what the Bible has to say about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. Uh, to begin, there are some fundamentals, some things that we must learn and we must understand beforehand before we can really get into the Holy Spirit. And the first of those fundamentals is that we must start in the Old Testament. Most, if not everything that we read about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is being built off of or, or is, is referencing directly what the Old Testament has already taught about the Holy Spirit. So open your Bibles up to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, uh, and, and we'll read with me there verses 9 through 14. This is a passage that's looking back to the time of the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt, as they're traveling through the wilderness. <clears throat> and they're reflecting on the ways in which they grieved the, the, the Holy Spirit. It says in Isaiah 63 verse 9, in all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? 
who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for, to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble, as a beast goes down into the valley and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. It is very important for us to notice in verse 11 what it references there and what they were asking, what, what God was remembering of Moses and them when they said, where is he, where is the God who put his spirit within them? If you're reading from the New American Standard Version, it translates this maybe a little bit clearer, more clear when it says, where is the God who put his spirit in the midst of them or among them? So we read there in Isaiah 63 that they're looking back to the time of the children of Israel in the old, uh, moving through the wilderness and the time which God placed his spirit in the midst of them for a purpose. We also see that this is, is also related in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 19 through 21. There in, in, uh, during this, uh, this prayer that, that was that was prayed by the leaders in, in Nehemiah. Uh, they say, Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst." Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing, their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. <clears throat> both of these verses, looking back at the same time, both of these verses in complete agreement. God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was placed within the children of Israel, in the midst of the children of Israel, at the time when they left Egypt. But what was He doing? Well, they make it very clear there that what he was doing was he was leading them. And that is seen when you read through the, the accounts of, of their walk through the wilderness. Flip back over to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 13. And I'm going to try to just move us through the Old Testament as we, as we see, keeping our fundamentals in mind that God's Holy Spirit was placed in the midst of the children of Israel. And what was he doing in that time? We're going to move through the, the history of the children of Israel very quickly this morning. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He's making it very clear here that the purpose of the Holy Spirit was to lead them. Exodus chapter 19 Turn over a few more chapters to 19 verses 4 through 6. There it says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So he's telling them that he is leading them somewhere. But there is a specific end involved with God leading them. We see the end goal for God was to lead them to him. As he says in verse 4, I have brought you to myself. 
This means that there was a relationship intended with the Holy Spirit being given out to man to lead them, to lead them into a relationship with God. And it was a covenant relationship, as he makes very clear there in verse 5. Turn over to Exodus chapter 40, and we get a little bit more information on that covenant relationship. Here at the very end of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, verses 36 through 38. It says, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This relationship that God gave his Holy Spirit to bring the children of Israel into was a covenant relationship with God. And what that means is when God sent them, they went. And where God told them to stay, they stayed. And where God told them what to do, that is what they did. But this chapter also introduces another aspect of the Holy Spirit leading Israel, and that is the aspect of God dwelling with his people. And we see here that the tabernacle and, the, and, and eventually the temple will be involved. And, and Exodus is moving everything towards this idea of a dwelling place for the Spirit of God within his people or the presence of God within his people. In fact, if we stay here in Exodus chapter 40 and go back just a few verses to verse 33. Read what it says there. And he raised up the court. This is speaking of Moses. He raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court, uh, of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. <clears throat> we see here, that the Holy Spirit, and we must remember this is the same Holy Spirit that we read about in Isaiah 63 that we read at the beginning of the lesson. This is uh, the, the Spirit that God put in the midst of the children of Israel, fills the tabernacle when they build this place for Him to dwell. There's a parallel to this in Leviticus 9. Uh, Leviticus 9 verses 23 and 24 it says, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord, Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Again, you have the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. You have the fire involved coming down from heaven, consuming the sacrifice. And the same exact thing is going to happen when Israel is allowed to build a more permanent place for the dwelling of God found in the temple. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, this is now uh, some time removed from the, from the time of the wilderness. This is after the reign of Saul, who reigned for 40 years, after the reign of David, who reigned for another 40 years, and now in the time of Solomon. They build the temple to the Lord. In 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 11, it says, It came to pass, when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priest could not continue ministering, because the, the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, this is the exact same thing that happened with the tabernacle. The tabernacle is, is raised. Moses comes out of the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord fills it. The temple is raised. The priests come out, and the glory of the Lord fills it. And also, we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, after Solomon prays, 
after Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple, another very similar thing to our account with the tabernacle. In verse 1, when Solomon had finished uh, praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. So 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7 are almost exact copies of Exodus 40 and Leviticus 9. Whenever God placed His Spirit amongst His people, it is almost always shown with the, the, the cloud of His glory and the fire of His presence that's shown in the wilderness, that's shown in the tabernacle, that's shown in the temple. So let's, let's stop for a moment and think about this. God puts His Spirit amidst the people to draw them closer to Him, to draw them into a relationship. And so God's people build a place for Him, a tabernacle. And when they build a place for Him to dwell, God fills it with His presence. And then they build a permanent place for Him in the temple. And again, God fills it with His presence. So when God's people, the pattern we're seeing, is God's people build a place for Him to dwell, what's going to happen? I think it's important that we reflect on that thought for just a moment. Because in it, we see that God wants to bless His people. That is His desire. His desire is to bless them. His desire is to lead them closer to Him. But we also see throughout the Scriptures that God is going to chasten His people as well whenever they need to be chastened. <clears throat> they must be holy. That is what we read in the book of Leviticus over and over again. You must be holy, uh, is, is what he speaks to the people, because they, uh, he says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He was informing them, for me to be your God and for you to be my people, for you to be in my presence, then you need to be like me. You need to be holy. And if you won't do that, then the presence of God is going to leave you. And there have been many things pointing this uh, out to them throughout history. If we step back in, in time to, to the garden, to Adam and Eve, the garden is in a sense a temple. It is a place of the dwelling place of God with man. Now, I don't think, I don't think the garden is supposed uh, uh, to reflect the temple more so as the temple and the tabernacle were supposed to reflect the garden. Looking back to the place where God had originally placed his presence with mankind. And what happened in the garden? God gave instruction to man. This is what you are to do. And you can eat of any fruit of the garden except for the fruit of the tree. And yet when, when, when we remember the story when, when sin entered in, when man was tempted to partake of that which they, what they were been told not to, sin enters into the garden. And no longer is the garden a place of holiness. It has been marred with sin. And no longer could Adam and Eve stay in the presence of God. They were cast out of the garden. Another account that, that should be pointing their minds towards this is found in Exodus 17 when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites from, from the rear and, and they, they must turn and fight them. And in their turn to fight, Moses tells them, when the rod of God is held above my, hand, my head, we will, we will have the favor of God. We will have the presence of God among us because we will be victorious. And yet when I lower the rod of God, then the Amalekites will begin to defeat us. And that's exactly what happened. And these accounts serve to teach a lesson regarding God as holy. And God is something that needs to be set up on high. That is necessary for the people of God to find His presence and His favor. So with that in mind, flip over to Ezekiel chapter 8 with me. 
Ezekiel chapter 8 is written during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Judah has, has fallen uh, captive to, to the Babylons, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and now you have this message coming out of Babylon uh, from the, the, the river Kibar as all the people had, were gathered together. And, and during this message, you have what is recorded here in chapter 8 uh, of, of Ezekiel setting with the leaders of, of the children of Israel and he is taking by a vision he is grabbed by his hair and dragged back to Jerusalem and set before the, uh, the, the, the temple it's almost as if God really wanted to get his attention here I really want you to see what I'm about to show you and what he shows them is a increasingly idolatrous nation in verse 5, Ezekiel 8, verse 5, he says, Son of man, lift your eyes now towards the north. The north is the, the direction which judgment came from. Lift your eyes towards the north. So I lifted my eyes towards the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was the image of jealousy in the entrance. And I was going to give him a description of why that is there. He says in verse 6, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. What God reveals to him in chapter 8, what he reveals to him in chapter 8 is that the people, it, the, the magnitude in which the people had not been holding him up, the people had not been making themselves holy. The whole chapter continues to show increasingly how idolatry had not just infiltrated the land. They had not just allowed it to come back amongst them in the land. It had infiltrated the, the very temple of God, and it had infiltrated the heart of the people. And then in chapters 10 and 11, some very difficult language to, to, to hear, especially as a, as a Jew, as a child of God. God is leaving them because of what they had done. In chapter 10 and 11, it reveals that their idolatry was forcing God out of his temple. Ever since the garden, the dwelling place for the presence of God has always been a single occupancy dwelling. There is no room for more to live in there with him. And in these chapters, he is letting them know, because of your idolatry, you have moved idols in and you have caused me to have to leave. In chapter 10, he talks about, as, we, as you read through chapter 10, the, the, the glory of the Lord comes out of the temple and stands at the threshold, stands at the door of the temple. But it's in verse, in verse 18. Um, excuse me. Yes, verse 18. He says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim act as the chariots of God in this vision. Stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God was above them. So in chapter 10, we see God move from the temple to the threshold, past the threshold, and out of the temple. And then verse 11, or chapter 11, verses 23 and 24 or excuse me, 22 and 23, he says, The cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is in the east side of the city. Isaiah 63 tells us God placed his spirit in the midst of the people, within the people. But because of the rebellion of the people, because of their idolatry, Ezekiel reveals that God has taken that spirit back. 
The Spirit of God has left the midst of the people. And what does this mean for the children of Israel? Remembering back to chapter 8, verse 5, it means judgment is coming. They're going to go into captivity. In fact, and, and as this vision is being told to them, they're already in captivity. They're being told why they are there. But they're also told that they are the remnant. And they are going to return. And we know that as studying through history, they do return. And under Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple, and won't that fix everything? Well, let's think about that, too, for just a moment. Turn over to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 6 reveals the, the building of the temple of God in the days of Zerubbabel. And in verses 15 through 18, I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to what happens when they rebuild the temple. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel and the priests and the Levites and the rest of the sins of captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. So we have the, tem the, the temple in Zerubbabel's day is built and it's dedicated just like the tabernacle and just like Solomon's temple. They offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house. You have 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their division and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. And then we get into the Passover. And that's it. Now when we read that, there is something missing from this account in Ezra. Something huge that is missing. And it was so shocking to me when this was just recently pointed out. Not, not too long ago, somebody pointed this out to me. The glory of God never fills the temple in Zerubbabel's day. They rebuild the temple and they dedicate the temple just like the tabernacle and just like the temple of Solomon's day. But nothing happens. And this doesn't mean that God wasn't with them. During the days of Zerubbabel were the days of Haggai. And Haggai was prophesying. And in Haggai 1.13 and in Haggai 2.4, he would say, Be strong, Zerubbabel, and be strong, Joshua the high priest, and be strong, all the people of Israel, for I am with you. And in Haggai 2.5, he would even go as far as to say, My spirit remains among you, but there was no visible presence of God with them as there had been in days before. Something was different. And when we get to Malachi chapter 3, the last chapter that, that, that we have in, in the Old Testament, it is, refers to the time after the completion of the temple. Malachi records that they are still looking for the presence of God to fill his temple. Malachi 3.1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They were still seeking the presence of God. They were seeking the Lord, and he had not come. So was God with them? Well, yes, absolutely he was with them. He says as much in Haggai. He was with them, but not in the way that he was with them before. But he would be with them in that same way again. And this is prophesied at three different times uh, in, in the lives of, uh, of the children of Israel. It's prophesied that God was going to be with them again before captivity, during captivity, and after. Before, in Isaiah chapter 32, verses 14 through 15, listen what he says here. 
Before they have went into captivity, Assyria has already taken the northern kingdom, but Judah has not been taken into captivity yet. And in Isaiah 32, verse 14, he says, Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Saying this, this that you see around you, it's going to be destroyed. You're going to lose what, what, what I have given you. The, the presence and the favor of God is going to be gone. But then in verse 15, these things will happen until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is counted as a forest. He's telling them that the things that, that, that you have now are going away. But once again, do you remember what happened in the wilderness? Because what happened in the wilderness is going to happen again. Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 3. He said, Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and informed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Again, God speaks here to Jacob and to Israel, and then he speaks to Jacob and Jeshurun. Jeshurun was a, a poetic name for Israel. And, and he describes them of, of a time not having anything to drink. And again, he's looking back to that wilderness language. And he tells them, the things that I've done before, I am going to do again. And if that were not enough for them, he reminds them again once they go into captivity. If you want to flip back over to Ezekiel, look in Ezekiel 37. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and he tells them in Ezekiel 37, verses 13 and 14. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. And I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now this is said in context to the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel sees this vision of corpses, skeletons, just, just whitewashed bones laying across the valley. And in front of his eyes, the bones are made to stand up and are clothed with muscle and organ and flesh. But they're still just that. They're corpses. Until the breath of God is breathed into them and they have life. And he tells them there that this is what is going to happen. The presence of God's Spirit is going to give life to your people. And then verse 39, or chapter 39, at the end of that chapter, in verse 29, he says, I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Now again, this is important because it highlights the fact that God had hidden His face from them. Chapters 8 through 11 make that clear. He left them, but He would no longer be hidden. Why? Because he was going to pour out his spirit once again. And we're again talking about bringing them into that closer relationship once again with him. And then finally you have the, th the third time this is prophesied. And that's after captivity. Turn over to Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And, and probably one of the most interesting passages that prophesy about what God is fixing to do pouring out his spirit he says I will pour out on the I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication 
Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Think about what he said there. I will pour out the spirit of grace and people will mourn having looked upon him whom they pierced. That should sound kind of familiar to many of us. Acts chapter 2 is what that is referring to. Acts chapter 2, if you want to start around verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you pierced, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They mourned when they heard this. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah all were prophesying that God's Spirit is going to be poured out again. And when He does it, it is going to cause people to mourn and to repent. And once again, there's going to be a renewed relationship with God. That happened on the day of Pentecost. That happened in Acts chapter 2. And Peter then goes on to, he informs them even more of this and the significance of what was happening by quoting Joel chapter 2. If you look at Acts chapter 2 verse 17, that is a quote taken from Joel 2. He says, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants, men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's, that is judgment language that he uses there. Blood and fire and vapor and the sun turned into darkness. and that, that is language that the Israelites knew to refer to the judgment of a nation. And so what Joel was prophesying and what Peter was alluding to is that the next time God comes and pours out his spirit, it is going to be both a great day of judgment and a great day of salvation. Now for certain, not all of that occurs on the day of Pentecost. As Joel said and as Peter alluded to in verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last days. But what this points out is that the pouring out of God's Spirit was inaugurated. It was dedicated at the time of Acts chapter 2. Certainly it entails more things that are yet to come, such as the great day of the Lord. But what this means is that the Old Testament has created expectations then. Expectations that, the, that Peter and the, the inspired writers of the New Testament were able to understand and used to teach what the Old Testament was. The purpose created in the Old Testament, the expected purpose, was that the Holy Spirit comes to create a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit comes to restore blessings from God. And the Holy Spirit comes to restore the leadership of God. And there was also an expected presence to be involved with the coming of the Spirit. 
The sound of rushing wind or water was described in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. That language needs to be familiar to us because looking back, we see that's what happened whenever God poured his spirit out on the tabernacle and on the temple. There appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one set upon each of them. Again, you have the fire from heaven. You see the exact same things happening in Acts 2 that happened back in Exodus and back in, the, in 1 Kings. And I think it's very important then that we also realize that the, the, the fire did not come and did not rest and the wind did not come and fill Herod's temple, which was built in that day. A Jew, knowing the, the Old Testament, might have been very tempted to run out of the building and look and see, is God returning to his temple? And he was. But the temple was not found in a place made with, man's, with the hands of men. The temple now rested within man, within the hearts of men, as, as Paul would go on to preach in 1 Corinthians. But also included with the expected presence of God was the expected presence of a gift. Whenever God came in the wilderness, it was to draw them closer to him and draw them closer to a place where they would live with him in, in, in harmony and in a close relationship and an inheritance like the land of Canaan. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 reveals that the same thing was happening there as well. Peter, when they asked, what shall we do? He said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The relationship brought to the, or given to the children of Israel was a gift meant to bring them closer to God. And likewise now, the gift of a restored relationship through the Holy Spirit, is meant to bring all mankind closer to God. So to wrap this up, I want to suggest that, that there is many, many more things that could be said about the Holy Spirit. This is, is, is not exhaustive, what we have looked at this morning. And I hope, especially as we, we consider things such as the way that He works in the New Testament, I hope to be able to speak on this in future, at, at a future date and, and give more, more thought and consideration to what it says there. But, but to wrap this up, we can know this. We can rest assured in this, that God is not a God as of a shadow. He is not shifting. He is, he is unchanging. And so the things which God did, the things which he did beforehand, they are not different than the things that he does today. God still leads his people, and he still draws them closer to him. How did he do that then? He did it through the Spirit. And he did it very literally. He led them. You know, the one thing that's emphasized in this is that no Israelite ever woke up in the wilderness, ever walked out of his, his tent or his dwelling, and went, you know what, guys? I really i am feeling pulled this morning to go to the east. I'm feeling that the Holy Spirit is guiding me to the east. Because what the rest of the Israelites would have done was have turned to the tabernacle and said, no, the Spirit of God is still at the tabernacle. You're not being pulled anywhere. If God moves, we will move. And if God stays, we will stay. This is the way he led them. It was objectionable. There was, there was no two interpretations. Either the cloud was there or it was moving. And likewise today, we need to be spirit-led people. That means we're not people based 
making decisions based on hunches and emotions. We're being people who make decisions based on knowledge of God's word. What he says, this we will do. Where he, he leads us, this is where we will go. And when he is silent, we must remain silent. We will follow his word, his sword of the spirit. And, and we will know that if we do that, we will not be ashamed because we have trusted in him. This morning, this morning, maybe you have not received the gift that was poured out in the days of Acts. You have not received the gift of a renewed relationship with God, but it is available. It is available to all those who, upon hearing the good news that Jesus died for your sins, for the things that you have done, and God made that Christ, Jesus both Lord and Christ, and if we will believe on that, and if we will repent from our former life and walk with him as if he was our master, as if he is our king and Lord, and we will be baptized to have our sins washed away, then we can receive that gift of renewed life, a renewed relationship with our God the Father. If we can assist you with that in any way this morning, won't you please let it be known as we stand and as we sing.